baseball fans. It's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. The Atlanta Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. Hello again and welcome to another episode of From the Diamond. As always, I'm Grant McCauley and it's time for our chat about what's going on with the Atlanta Braves, which of course on this edition of the show is going to talk all about this playoff push here in the final week and the showdown with the Philadelphia Phillies and perhaps the New York Mets that will help the Braves punch their ticket to the postseason. And to help me out in getting you set for this big series against the Phillies, this National League East Divisional Showdown, I'll have Corey McCartney, who's my co-host for Talking Chops Battery Power. He'll join me in just a moment. Before we get started, I want to let you know you can find From the Diamond on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Leave those ratings and reviews. I appreciate those. They help out the show immensely. If you want to connect on social media, you can find me at Grant McCauley, G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. You can find the show at From the Diamond with an underscore on the end. You can also find me on Instagram at Grant McCauley. The show is at From the Diamond with no underscore. And if you're looking for all the videos, articles, and every episode of this podcast, you can find it all at FromTheDiamond.com. So to dive into what's going on with the Atlanta Braves as they approach perhaps their biggest series of the year, at least their biggest week of the year, trying to put away the Philadelphia Phillies and clinch their fourth consecutive National League East Division title, I want to welcome Corey McCartney into the show. As always, you can follow him on Twitter at Corey J. McCartney, and you can pick up a copy of his book, Tales from the Atlanta Braves Dugout. That is available on Amazon, also out at Barnes & Noble. Corey, we've been spending a lot of time together on the podcast, and of course, we got a brand new venture we're going to talk about a little bit later, but it's great to sit down and talk Braves with you again. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we all know this is a massive week, and uh, you know, just excited to see it unfold and, and see if it ends up with another uh, you know, group of guys having a little celebration out there in the waterfall at Truist Park. Yeah, let's hope so. Let's hope everybody knows how to swim, and let's hope the Braves can do it sooner than later. That, of course, is their goal coming into this series against Philadelphia. As the Braves come in home to Truist Park with that magic number of five, they have a chance to deal the Phillies' postseason hopes that fatal blow if Atlanta can sweep its way to that fourth straight division title. It's a little bit nerve-wracking, Corey, but I would say that this is a great time to be a baseball fan, is it not? Yeah, I mean, you know, look, everyone looked at that series out West and and had that feeling that things might get dicey and you might have some nervousness about this series, but man, it's just set up to be a lot of fun. You've got obviously the top pitching uh, matchups that you could ask for in this series. Everybody's ready to roll. The Braves, obviously, you know, when you think about all they've gone through to get to this point, to be on the cusp of another division crown. I mean, it's, it's obviously, it's always an exciting time of year, but when the team that you're kind of intertwined with is right there in this, I mean, you're you're right. it, It gets no better. Yeah, absolutely. Now let's talk a little bit about this Phillies team that rolls into Atlanta two and a half games back. They've gone 30-22 and 22 since August the 1st. They're nipping at the Braves' heels for now. And I think these are both teams that are going to have to lean on their offense and big performances from their key stars to gain an advantage. And that all, of course, will be starting tonight. The game plan here is simple, right? I mean, it's two offenses that can put up 
big numbers who have been, you know, playing really well. I mean, the Braves have, you know, hit the most home runs in the National League. The Phillies have been red hot the second half of the season. Bryce Harper is an MVP candidate. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just all set up for whether you want to talk about the division, the NL MVP. I mean, it, it's all right here, and it's all in a, a series that figures to be a lot of fun. Yeah, Bryce Harper's got a very compelling MVP case, and he may even have the inside track right now, pending, of course, the results of this series and this week. But with Fernando Tatis and the Padres ending up out of the postseason entirely, which I think surprised a lot of people, you know, Harper's leading the National League in slugging and OPS heading into the final week of the season. He's, as you mentioned, been red hot down the stretch, helping the Phillies to push themselves inside of three games of the Braves. Anyway, Harper's batting 347, 19 homers, and a 1225 OPS since the All-Star break. Corey, if I'm the Braves in this series, I look to take the bat out of his hands as much as possible. Yeah, I mean, make somebody else beat you, right? I mean, yeah. obviously, you know, Gene Segura's hit 14 home runs. You know, he's been among the top 20 guys in the National League in the second half in home run production. Make somebody else be the one to beat you in this team. And obviously, you know, don't help another guy's MVP candidacy when you got a couple guys that are vying for that same award on your roster. Yeah, absolutely not. Now, the Phillies have not been without injury themselves. The Braves lost Ronald Acuna Jr. way back in June. Meanwhile, the Phillies, they lost Reese Hoskins. He's done for the year. Alec Bohm, you know, all jokes aside, he does not pan out for them this year. But as you look up and down their lineup, they've got Andrew McCutcheon showing some power, but he's hitting two twenty one this year. JT Romuto, I think, has had a pretty decent season, but it hasn't necessarily been the stuff of legend. 270, 16 home runs. He can steal some bases. He's one of the better catchers you'll find in the National League. Otherwise, yeah, nobody really jumps off the page as guys that really scare you in that Phillies lineup. I almost feel like giving Bryce Harper the Barry Bonds treatment, if there's a base open, I don't care if it's second base or third base, you might just want to consider putting this guy on to make the rest of the Phillies offense have to pick up and come up with a big hit. Yeah, I mean, honestly, and you think about this first matchup too here where you've got Zach Wheeler on the mound, and you know, you know, runs are going to be hard to come by against a guy who's been, you know, a Cy Young candidate in the mm-hmm. National League. So, yeah, I think not allowing Harper, you know, and a guy who's hit 73% above league average, they don't have another guy on this team that's hit more than 30% above. So he's the guy to avoid. And, yeah, I think, yeah, free passes uh, should be the – motive of the day every day in this series against Bryce Harper. Yeah, the group that's going to be asked to neutralize Harper in the Phillies lineup is Atlanta's three best starters. So let's talk a little bit about each one of them. We've got Charlie Morton getting the ball in game one, Max Fried in game two, Ian Anderson in game three. Atlanta's lined up just the way it needs to be, but so are the Phillies. You've got Braves nemesis Zach Wheeler in game one. You've got Aaron Nola in game two. You've got Kyle Gibson in game three. So we're going to see these two teams fight for their October rights in this series. Not only with the offenses that are going to have to be front and center, but also with the best pitchers they have available. Yeah, I mean, Wheeler leads the national, leads the majors in innings, two hundred and six and a third. He's got leads the NL in strikeouts. I mean, he, he's made six starts against the Braves in as a Philly, and he's allowed a one six zero ERA and thirty nine and a third inning. I mean, that he's going to be the tone setter here. Um, because you know, Aaron Nola. I mean, you think about July twenty fifth when he pitched eight and two thirds of one run ball. Uh, with nine Ks and no walks against the Braves, he's had a bit of a subpar season. Three two ADRA. We know how well Max Fried's been pitching. Those two games, I think, you know, kind of set themselves up where there's a definitive pitching edge on each side, which you obviously could lead into a really interesting Thursday. So, you know, we'll see what the Braves can do against Wheeler, who's just been awfully tough for anybody to deal with. Yeah, Wheeler two and one in his four starts against the Braves this year. One thirty five ERA. The Braves have really not been able to find a way to handle this guy. 34 punch-outs in 26 and two-thirds innings. 
and he's not putting a bunch of guys on either. Only six walks. He's only allowed one home run to the Braves. And as Corey mentioned, Atlanta leading the National League in home runs. Uh, one of those clubs that just knows how to mash, but have not been able to figure out a way to solve Zach Wheeler as of yet. The man that's going to be asked to at least hold serve, if you will, is the veteran Charlie Morton. Now, he's posted a 1.7 F4 since the end of July. That's 13th best among qualified Major League starters. 3.15 ERA, over 10 strikeouts per nine in those last 10 starts. But, Corey, here's the stat I found that didn't make me feel quite as good. Atlanta has won just three of those 10 starts for Charlie Morton, which is a bit foreboding, if we're being honest. Yeah, I mean, think about you know the last six games he's allowed you know three or more earned runs in those starts. He's pitched to a 3.06 ERA against the Phillies this year. So obviously, you know, you're asking a guy who has pitched at the biggest stage in a World Series here to set the tone for your team. He's said it multiple times in the last two weeks that this is such a fun part of the season, an exciting part of the season. I mean, if you're looking to anybody on that roster to walk the walk, I mean, it's Charlie Morton and he's getting as big of an opportunity as he's had in a Braves uniform against a guy who I mentioned, you know, is a Cy Young candidate in the National League. So you know Morton's coming back, and you mentioned this on Battery Power, that the Braves have seen enough of Charlie Morton to want him back next year, and this is it could be a defining game for him in a Braves uniform. So we'll see what he can do opposite Zach Wheeler. Clearly the biggest start in a Braves uniform for him in quite some time, I'd say all the way going back to his Major League debut, if we're being fair for what Charlie Morton's done throughout his career. In Atlanta, but what he can do for them right now is give them the innings they need and help shut down that Phillies offense. Now, when you do get to game two, you've got Max Fried, who has been just dynamite since the end of July. He's six and one, Braves nine and two in his 11 starts since the 28th of July. Fried a 158 ERA in 74 innings. Opponents really not finding the answers against Max Fried here in the second half. He owns a 2.2 Fangraphs wins above replacement. Over the last two months, the only pitchers in all of Major League Baseball who've posted a better war are Max Scherzer at 3.0, Robbie Ray at 2.7, Corbin Burns at 2.6. That's pretty good company for Max Fried, the way he's been pitching for the Braves the past couple of months. He's been ridiculous. I mean, think since July 23rd when he gave up four earned against the Phillies, by the way, in a 5-1 loss. Uh, that's 11 starts since then with a 1.58 ERA, mm-hmm. 2.76 FIP. He struck out 67 guys and walked 11 with a 187 batting average against. So um, momentum clearly in Max Fried's corner and, you know, a guy with a couple Maddoxes on his resume for this season. And um, yeah, I almost wish it was flipped a little bit, you know, where we were getting Wheeler and Fried because Fried has been so ridiculously hot. But man, this is a, you know, he's pitching really well at the right time. And, you know, obviously this could be a crucial game if they have any trouble against Wheeler, putting a lot on Fried for game two. Yeah, and I think it's the guy that you want to put a lot on if we're looking at who are the best candidates to give the Braves the kind of performance they need at the exact time they need it. Of course, you need to win these games if you're the Braves or the Phillies, regardless of who starts the contest. And the bullpens may have a lot to say about who's going to win these games as well as it seems to always do. But as you line up your starters, Charlie Morton against Zach Wheeler, certainly a winnable game for the Braves. Definitely going to be a challenge for Atlanta's bats, however. And then you look at Max Fried. Matching up against Aaron Nola, who I think for many people, you would have come into the year at least expecting him to be perhaps the ace of the Philly staff. But Wheeler has really taken that mantle and run with it. Meanwhile, you get to game three. That's where it gets, I think, a little bit more interesting for both teams. You've got the rookie Ian Anderson on the mound for the Braves. I'll talk a little bit more about him in a moment. But just looking at Gibson, the Phillies pitching staff has really been under duress again this year. Four and five for Gibson since coming over in a trade with Texas. 487 ERA. He's made 10 starts for them. 
He's not a power pitcher. He's not a guy that's going to overpower the Braves lineup. Meanwhile, I think we finally got back to seeing a little bit more of the Ian Anderson that we expect to see his last time out. Seven innings of one run ball, two hits, one walk, eight strikeouts against Arizona. He's 4-1 in his 10 starts at Truist Park this year. And opponents batting just 214 against him with an OPS just north of six. So, Corey, I think that that matchup, at least on paper for right now, seems to be one that the Braves draw a little bit of an advantage in with Ian Anderson's good work at home and the fact that Gibson hasn't exactly been lights out since being acquired at the trade deadline. Yeah, I agree with you. I will say this, though. So the Phillies have lost 27 of the 50 games they've played against left-handed starting pitchers this season. So let's say, you know, maybe the Braves get things done against Zach Wheeler and then they'd struggle against Max Freed. You've got Kyle Gibson lined up for Thursday, but Ranger Suarez has been so good for the Phillies. I mean, he's got a 1-4-5 ERA in 11 starts, 38 games he's appeared in overall. Could Joe Girardi flip the script and go away from Gibson, who's not been really great, uh, with the potential that maybe you'd catch lightning in a bottle there with a guy who's been pitching pretty well? I know it's Gibson, but I think that's a possibility if maybe Girardi wants to kind of mix things up if things go awry over those first couple games. If you think about what the Phillies would be facing then, very well their season could be on the line. So would it be out of the realm of possibility to see him at least get some innings? Last time out, he spun a shutout, did Ranger Suarez against the Pittsburgh Pirates. That was on September the 25th. And as you mentioned, Corey, he's been extremely good since moving into the Philadelphia rotation, really out of necessity, uh, back in August. So We'll see what exactly they decide to do, but when I did look at Ian Anderson after coming off of the injured list, it didn't seem like it was all clicking immediately upon coming back, but seeing those strikeouts against Arizona, and I know it's the Diamondbacks and they're not the best team in the National League. In fact, they're the worst team in the National League, but that was the kind of Ian Anderson performance that has me also feeling a little bit better about where he's at, where he's trending at this very crucial time of year, and of course with even bigger games waiting next month if the Braves can get this thing done. Yeah, I mean, because you think about the five starts, you know, before that, you know, he had a 5.82 ERA in that span. He had, you know, struck out 20 with 15 walks. As good as the changeup is for him, if you can't locate the fastball and guys are squaring you up, I mean, how effective is that secondary pitch? So they were hitting almost 300 against him in that five start span. So I think that Diamondbacks game was big from the end of just the momentum, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that was the first time he'd struck out eight since June 26th. I mean, it's. Obviously, there was a time away. There was the time in Gwinnett. But I think the last time out was really big in terms of momentum. And they need that version of him, right? They need the one. They don't necessarily need the one that was like, you know, Christy Matthewson level last postseason. But they need a guy that they can't be concerned about. And I mean, I think you had some concerns about him when he's, you know, out there lasting three innings against the Rockies on September 4th. So I think that that last one is huge and terms of just the momentum for a really crucial series. Yeah, going back to Ranger Suarez, who might well face Ian Anderson in that game on Thursday, that September 25th start would line him up to be on regular rest on Thursday the 30th. So I think, Corey, that's something to watch out for. And if you're Joe Girardi, and if you're the Phillies, and if it comes down to that game and extending your season, that feels like a move you almost have to make at that point, don't you? Well, yeah, and think about it from this end. The Braves have not really seen a lot of him. I mean, they saw him in July 23rd and 25th. They saw him June 9th, but they only saw him you know, in small spurts. Right? I mean, they saw him for three innings back on June 9th, but they've not seen a really elevated and you know, really good version of him, the, the version of him that's been on this uh, you know, run here as a starter. So I think it's, it could play to Philly's advantage to kind of just give them a different look from somebody they're not all that familiar with. 
It certainly could, and this is the time of year where if you do have, it's kind of like football, you know, if you do have that trick play that you can run, picking the right time to do it is pretty crucial, and for the Phillies, it feels like in this series, and of course, pending the outcome of Game 1, the outcome of Game 2 of the series, but then a chance, even if you're the Phillies and you win those first couple of games, wouldn't you want to have Suarez so that you could continue that momentum? I almost feel like this is inevitable, but I'm not Joe Girardi, and I'm not making this decision, but this seems like something that would almost be a foregone conclusion if I'm the Phillies, but maybe just leave Gibson's name out there in the meantime so that when you do make that switch, I'm not going to say it's going to trick anybody with the Braves. There's some you know, fairly good critical thinkers in the front office who will probably be aware of this, and I'm sure preparations and plans will be made in the meantime for whoever you're going to face out there, but it just seems like and feels like the kind of move that could stem the tide if you're the Phillies or perhaps just help them to avoid being eliminated in the series, which is I don't want to say job number one for them, but they want to get out of town, still having some hope of pushing the Braves down to the wire. Yeah, a little gamesmanship here, I think, by the Phillies. I and mean, you're talking about a guy who, since August 24th, has a one four three ERA. Mm-hmm. And if he's on his regular rest, it, it makes no sense. Maybe you go out there and see what version of Kyle Gibson you have, but what does that get you? I mean, what if they're down three runs in the first inning? It doesn't make any sense. I think Suarez is going to ultimately be the play here. That certainly could be. Let's talk a little bit about the Braves' offense. It's going to be tasked with getting some leads against this Phillies pitching staff that we've talked a little bit about, and of course, doing a lot of what it's been doing of late. It's powered by this infield where you've got home runs all the way around the horn and bringing more thump with the revamped outfield. And as much as Bryce Harper has an MVP case, I think there's an equally compelling one to be made for Austin Riley, who arrived with a breakout season I don't think anyone could have expected. In fact, I feel like that strengthens his case because who saw this coming? And you also have last year's MVP, Freddie Freeman, who's right in the discussion as well. If the Braves are going to put the Phillies down in this series, and I mean down and out and put their playoff hopes completely on ice, I think both of these guys are going to have to be front and center. Big reasons why the Braves were able to put the Phillies away. So I mentioned that outside of Harper, the Phillies only have one other guy that's hitting, uh, you know, higher than 30% above league average. The Braves, they have five players. I mean, it's, the depth issue here, I mean, it's not even fair, right? I mean, everything has just been so great from this outfield, and, you know, we can spend some more time on that. But what you've gotten up and down that lineup, Austin Riley has played his way into this thing, you know, with a ridiculous second half. I mean, Freddie Freeman is, is you know, regained after the worst stretch into May of his career. It's a really potent lineup, and it's to the point where the guy who's hitting 7% above league average in Ozzie Albies, you start to wonder, is he going to get some MVP love? So there's just so much depth. I mean, the Phillies have been hot, but we know that this Braves offense is just capable of so much more than they are. Oh, we definitely do. I want to look at one other thing with the Phillies and then get back to talking about the Braves offense because it just got me thinking about how these clubs are ending up the year. You've got the Miami Marlins awaiting the Phillies, but that series may not really matter unless they can continue to beat the Braves. Phillies are 9-7. and seven against the Braves in their 16 meetings. Of course, it's been a couple of months since these clubs have squared off. They're only 8-8 eight and eight against the Marlins this year, so I think that old adage of winning the games you should against a club and the fact that some of these teams that really don't have a great overall record, they're not going to the postseason, they can play a bit of spoiler as well. And it's also important to note, the Braves are getting to finish their season at home over the next six games. The Phillies are going on the road, down 2.5 with 6 to play, trying to make this comeback into a reality and they're going to be facing the team that is ahead of them, the one that they're chasing, but then also a team that has given them trouble in the Marlins. So I think that's kind of fascinating when you look at the overall picture right there. The Phillies are 9-7 and seven against the Braves, but they've been outscored 75-64. to 64. 
the Braves have held sway in this, even though they don't have the wins to show for. I mean, you can go on and on about their performance in one-run games and two-run games being a, a reason why they've been in a lot of the positions they've been in this year. But, um, you know, things are certainly set up for them. But the Mets, the Marlins, like neither one of them really has anything to play for aside from just trying to throw a monkey wrench into the whole equation, right? I mean, as long as things aren't decided over the next three games at Truist Park, which one of those teams needs momentum more for 2022 when you're thinking about the Marlins and the Mets and trying to play a spoiler in this whole thing? Yeah, and there's a big difference between the Braves and the Phillies when it does come to those one-run games. That's been a big problem for the Braves, has not been a huge problem for the Phillies. They are 30 and 23 in one-run games. The Braves, pretty much the polar opposite. They're 24 and 30 in their one-run games, which is a point of frustration, I'm sure, for the team. It's a point of frustration, of course, for fans as well. But when you look at what the Braves are dealing with when it does come to the New York Mets, if you look at the series after the Phillies, Braves are just 8-8 eight and eight against the Mets, but... This is not the same Mets team we saw over the first couple of months either. So you're dealing with a very different animal when it comes down to the wire with a Mets team that's all beat up, lost some of its key performers, and just looks like a shell of the team that, for whatever reason, got to sit in first place for over 100 days. And then the rest of the division started to kind of come to life and the Mets crashed down to earth. The Mets have not won consecutive games since September 3rd and 4th against the Nationals. It's just been a debacle, right? I mean, they've, they've lost five straight games. You know, they're just getting obliterated by the the Brewers in this series that they just wrapped up. And, you know, it's a train wreck within a train wreck within a train wreck. I mean, it's, it's over and over again. Just the, I would imagine somebody's going to write a pretty good book about the ridiculousness of this 2021 Mets season and what it began, what it was in this middle and what it's ultimately transformed into. I mean, it's just, we know this, what this franchise is capable of in terms of just some insane storylines, and they have outdid themselves when you think about how long they held this division lead. So I saw something on Twitter that really underscored how just unimpressive the Mets 2021 season has been, how frustrating it's been. And this statistic has been kind of all over the place, but Anthony DeComo decided to track it down. He, of course, has been covering the Mets for years and years. No team in Major League history has spent as much time, 103 days, in first place and then finished with a losing record as the 2021 Mets, and they are mathematically guaranteed to become the first team to do that. Those are not the kind of things you set out to do on opening day. That is some dubious history that the Mets have already locked up, when meanwhile, just a couple of months ago, they were hoping to have a say in going to the postseason and winning this division. Now the only way they have a say in it is if the Braves somehow are teetering on the brink in the final three games of the season. I don't think that's the consolation prize the Mets are looking for. So this is obviously not a Mets podcast no, but I, I ask you this which fan base is more frustrated is it the Mets who were in first place for that long who had Jacob deGrom looking like he was an MVP candidate mm-hmm. let alone a Cy Young candidate or the Padres who had the best record in baseball through 54 games and just got eliminated from the postseason but still have an MVP candidate rolling a Fernando Tatis Jr. I think it's a push between those two teams but if we talk about kind of a more long-suffering fan base it's probably the Padres just in terms of they haven't been to a World Series altogether that recently you have to go back into the what 1990s to find that the Mets were in one amazingly about half a decade ago so it's not that crazy to think that the Mets with their big payroll and of course the big owner who has taken them over that is very interested in creating a winning product in Steve Cohen you would think that they'd be heading in the right direction but for the Padres I mean Think about this. I mean, this is the second time that A.J. Preller has loaded up at the big league level and not been able to make good on that and get his team into the World Series or into that winner's circle. 
And this one, I don't know, Corey, what do you think? Is this one equal or worse than about five or six years ago when they brought in a whole bunch of stars and weren't able to turn that into a winning franchise year over year? I think this is worse because, you know, you've got a homegrown centerpiece in Tatis. This wasn't just like they went all crazy within a year. This is built towards this. Think back to when they got Hosmer, Mm -hmm. you know, you go out and sign Eric Hosmer and, you know, that seemed crazy at the time and they just built around it to get to this point. That before just felt like, okay, we're going crazy. Everything's coming in. This is going to be the 2000 Lakers where we're going to go out and, you know, have this ridiculous team that can't, (laughs) you know, end up delivering I wonder who's going to be the fall guy out there. I was listening to Jace Tingler on MLB Network, and he was asked about, you know, what did you learn about yourself this season that needs a change in order for you guys not to be in this situation mm-hmm. next year? And he said, I need to do a better job dealing with confrontation. So as much as everyone tried to act like Machado and Tatis going at each other in the dugout wasn't a big deal, clearly it was a big deal. And the yeah. fact that, that he let that happen and set that tone, I'm kind of going off on the rail here on something this podcast is not about, but I think it's going to be hard to not place a finger on Tingler for a team mm-hmm. that, that fell apart like this. You're obviously not going to say, all right, this is on you, Machado. This is on you, Tatis. I think we know where the blame's going to ultimately lay. Yeah, I mean, those two guys have long-term contracts. They're not going anywhere anytime yeah. soon. I mean, the one thing I will say, and I do want to get back to who takes the fall out there, and I kind of feel like it's an important discussion we can have, or a relevant discussion we can have, just because the Braves are about to see the Mets. They just saw the Padres. Both of those teams were looked at a couple of months ago as being better or in a better position than the Atlanta Braves. Then the trade deadline rolled around, and the Braves flipped the script on the National League East and climbed back to the top of that ladder, at least for the moment. But just looking at the Padres when they loaded up the last time, including a couple of trades with the Braves that ultimately helped Atlanta end up with Max Freed, that helped Atlanta end up with the draft pick that turned into Austin Riley. Those are good things for the Braves. So thanks to the Padres for loading up on that. But it also allowed the Padres to deal James Shields to the White Sox and get Fernando Tatis Jr. So that was bearing some fruit. But I don't think Padres fans are interested in seeing what they get out of the teardown for the second time in five or six years when they were expecting to be winning out in the National League West, which is a tough division, and just winning overall the big games in the postseason to make all this worth it. So I'm fascinated to see how this plays out. It's going to be a lot more than just the director of scouting. Be that as it may, does A.J. Preller survive this? Does Jace Tingler survive this? I feel like both of them won't, but then again, we'll see what they decide to do in the offseason. But to bring everything full circle and back to the Braves, with the Padres falling from grace out in the West, with the Mets falling from grace in the East, The Braves have been the opportunists that they could be. And with the trades that happened around the deadline, that's kind of pole vaulted Atlanta back into a position to go to October and make some noise. And the big reason why, and we talked about this on Battery Power this week as well, is what's been happening with this revamped Atlanta outfield, Corey, because I feel like that is the big reason why the Braves find themselves where they are, is bringing in quantity and quality to totally rebuild an outfield that really was not getting the job done. Yeah, we talked a couple times about Alex Anthopoulos' comments uh, post-deadline on the show this week, uh, You know where he said you can't replace Ronald Cooney Jr. with one yeah. guy, and so they threw numbers at it. And not only did they throw numbers at it, but the thing that's just – I just talked about this with you then. I mean, it, it, it's so crazy to me that you think about when you lose Ronald Cooney Jr., between then and the trade deadline, there were only four outfields in baseball that were worse than what the Braves were – putting out there on an everyday basis. And you, it wasn't that they had guys that were underperforming. Obviously, we know they were sub-replacement level players that yeah. they were giving everyday playing time to. 
So then you go out and you pick up Duvall, you pick up, you know, Eddie Rosario, you pick up Jorge Soler. And then first of all, you pick up Jock Peterson. Since the deadline, they lead the NL in home runs and are third in ISO out of that same outfield. I think along the way, Anthopoulos has made some pretty deft moves. I mean, think about getting Dallas Keuchel in the middle of the year. You think about some of the other moves that he's made, bringing in Travis Darnot. I mean, this to me might be the craziest thing and the most successful thing he's done. Uh, at the helm of the Braves and getting them to this point with this group of guys that he was able to pick up so many of them and have this kind of production from all of them. You know, I mentioned that on battery power. That to me is the craziest part of it. It's it. It's all worked out in one way or another for every one of them. I mean, this has not been the Dodgers version of Jock Peterson, at least not yet. Um, but man, the the overall production. You're talking about 40 home runs collectively out of these guys uh, at this point is pretty crazy. And here's a way to look at the overall production. This comes from Matt Kritzberg, who, of course, is over on Outfield Fly Roll. Make sure you're following those guys and checking out their podcast as well. But the Braves deadline outfield acquisitions, Duvall, Soler, Rosario, and Peterson now have just under 700 plate appearances. They batted thus far, 254, on basing 327, slugging just over 500, and they have 40 home runs and well over 100 runs knocked in as a combined unit. So the Braves have essentially gone out and gotten a 40-homer hitter to just jump in there and give you that kind of production. And really, when you think about what the Braves had to trade for it, it's nothing to write home about. The biggest prospect they gave up was Bryce Wilson, who had kind of graduated from the prospect ranks and was really just bouncing between Gwinnett and Atlanta, trying to carve out a niche. Otherwise, I feel like these are the kinds of deals that you didn't know what was going to be out there at the deadline, I don't think. And some of these names might have struck you a little bit odd when the deals happened. Eddie Rosario was hurt. Jorge Soler was in the midst of another down season. He did lead the American League in home runs a couple of years ago, but he didn't look like that player. And of course, with Adam Duvall, the Braves knew what they got, and they knew what he'd been doing to them this year. So there was a case to be made for him. And I love what Jock Peterson brings in terms of postseason experience and just that winning pedigree. These are all moves that are put together extremely, extremely important for giving the Braves a chance to not only get over 500, which took them forever to do this year, but to get well above 500 and perhaps grab their fourth consecutive division title. That was a pretty darn good trade deadline for Alex Anthopoulos that is allowing us to talk about the possibility of postseason baseball for the Atlanta Braves in the final days of September, heading into October. A 945 OPS from Eddie Rosario, a 848 from Jorge Soler, 844 from Adam Duvall. Uh, Jock Peterson is a little bit below league average there, 747. But think about this. I mean, not only were you put in position with Ronald Cunha Jr. to have to go out and get this, yeah, obviously you don't have Marcelo Zuna either. And right. not only when, when you did have him this year, he had a 645 OPS. So think if Azuna is still on the roster and he's performing at that level, what does this look like? I mean, it, I mean, I go back to, I mentioned this on battery power, Mark Teixeira at 1,020 and Fred McGriff at 1,004 are the only players acquired at the deadline right now who have had a higher OPS than what Eddie Rosario has had. And I know it's, 84 plate appearances, but those guys are the benchmarks of yeah. what embrace the best they've gotten at the trade deadline. I mean, Adam LaRoche was really good in that year that they had him at the deadline, but I mean, those guys are the benchmarks and you've got three guys and Peterson's had his moments, but who are performing at peak levels uh, and they're all doing it at once. Yeah. It's important to point out with Rosario, as you did the sample size, a little bit smaller than McGriff and Teixeira, probably about a third yeah. of that, but you can't, I think, you know, overstate the impact that Eddie Rosario has made. And, hey, none of those other guys came over and hit for the cycle basically on yeah. five pitches, taking the first pitch of the game and then hitting for the cycle on the next four pitches. That's one of the coolest things I've ever seen. So 
Thanks to Eddie Rosario just for doing that, because every once in a while, you want baseball to show you something that you've never seen before, and it can do that on a nightly basis. That Eddie Rosario feat was pretty darn cool. Again, that stat about the combined Braves power output from Duvall, Soler, Rosario, and Peterson comes from Matt Critzberg. Make sure you check him out on Twitter, at BravesMattC. I wanted to make sure I got that plug in there, because that was some pretty good digging on those numbers. And just goes to show you, if you knew you could put a 40-homer hitter in your lineup, You'd be very happy to do that. And then think about this, as we've talked about revamping this outfield and the fact that the guys that were trying to fill in in the outfield at the trade deadline just weren't able to get it done for the Braves on opening day. You had Ronald Acuna Jr., you had Christian Pache, you had Marcelo Zuna. They are all not in the picture for a variety of reasons, and we'll kind of leave the Ozuna discussion for another day. You had to do something about this outfield. And you're right, Corey, it wasn't just Ronald Acuna Jr. The Braves needed that quantity and the quality they're in in order to get themselves in a place to have a competitive lineup. And I think the Braves are putting out one through eight, a lineup that gives other pitchers reason to pause as they go through that starting nine for the Braves before you get to the pitcher spot, because you've got guys that can hurt you one through eight. And then when you get Max Fried at the, in there too, I mean, one then you've got nine. nine guys that can, that can absolutely hurt you. And I want to say this is a bigger conversation for later too, but we know that Jock Peterson, you know, has an option for next year. We know Adam Duvall has an option for next year. Jorge Soler is going to be a free agent. Rosario is going to be a free agent. I wonder what these glimpses that these guys is doing in terms of the Braves planning for what that 2022 outfield is going to look like. Um, You know, that's something I'm I'm just kind of been noodling on a little bit there, but we hear Brian Snicker say this all the time, lengthening the lineup, lengthening. This is truly it's hard to, to think of a time when the lineup has been this deep because mm-hmm. there's always been that, okay, well, you're going to get to that spot. You're going to get to that. Where is the let up in this now? I mean, it, there is not one. I mean, it's, it looks like an American league lineup, especially if Travis Darno, you know, is hitting and then you've got, you know, <laughs> the day you've got Max Fried out there and you know what he can do at the plate too. So there's depth, there's depth in the bench and there's no let up, uh, you know, one through eight. No, not at all. I think that you can have some highs and lows. Not everybody's going to be streaking at the same time. Not everybody's going to be slumping at the same time. We've seen Dansby Swanson kind of have some peaks and valleys throughout the season, but the overall body of work has been good enough at the plate, and he's certainly been better than great out in the field. He's still contributing to the Braves on a daily basis as well. But you're right, one through eight. If you're talking about that three in the outfield, picking whichever one is going to be the odd man out for that day that is then available for you off the bench, that infield of Austin Riley, Dansby Swanson, Ozzie Albies, Freddie Freeman, all guys who have shown some serious power and having Travis Darno back behind the plate, not just for what he gives you offensively, but I think the Braves very much missed the consistency that he gives the staff day in and day out because the Braves kind of had a revolving door behind the plate for, what, 90-plus games when Travis Darno was on the sideline with that torn thumb ligament. So a lot of things came together at the same time for Atlanta. So it's been good to see all of those things leading to a lineup that is much more powerful. And as you said, Corey, it's, it's been lengthened in the way that it needs to be. The depth is finally there for the Braves when it comes to fielding a really tough lineup. And they're going to be asking that lineup to go out there and score some serious runs against the Phillies so that you don't have to deal with some of these one-run games and situations. And I know we'd love to close out this podcast without talking about it, but we saw Will Smith walk a high wire against San Diego over the weekend that I did not think was actually possible. He walked the first two guys he faced. He struck out the third. He walked the fourth guy, then struck out back-to-back batters to punch out the side, but also having walked the bases loaded. I told you the Eddie Rosario thing was really cool because I'd never seen a player hit for a cycle in the way that he did. I don't know if I would say what Will Smith did was really cool the other day, but man, am I glad he did it. 
Yeah, I mean, look, and the people who like to rail against Will Smith, it was just further ammunition there. I mean, since August 7th, he's got a 4-4-3 RA, 6-5-1 FIP. I mean, mm. he's given up a number of six home runs in that span. He's blown four saves, the 13 converted. I don't know that you know that he's the best option to have in that ninth inning. Would love to see Tyler Matzik get an opportunity there. I'm really high on him. I think he's a guy who's you know, riding a ton of momentum now. I mean, I think he's capable of handling that spot. We know how much A.J. Minter covets that spot. Uh, but, man, it, it, you know, that was such a wild scene. And for him to pull that out and pull that game out, I mean, that felt like the the biggest win of the season, you know, a day after they, you know, kind <laughs> of have that crazy, you know, comeback. So, um, uh, yeah, it's a, what a wild performance here from Will Smith. It was certainly wild. It's a game that I think I said on Twitter, you know, that's great. I'm glad that they won. Let's never do that again. I yeah. feel like it took years off my life in terms of stress level. But the Braves are going to need Will Smith to play some kind of role here, to make some kind of contribution. Getting things figured out, this is not the time of year where you'd like to think, oh, we'll just let him work through it. But that's kind of where the Braves are. They do have, I feel like, other options that they could look for in matchups. I'm not sure that Richard Rodriguez is really in that discussion for me at this point. I just haven't seen enough out of him that gives me a whole lot of faith that you just want to hand the role to him. But Tyler Matzak has been pitching some of his best baseball over the last couple of months. And I think we've also seen Luke Jackson time and again come in and get the job done for the Braves. And maybe it's just a question of, do we have a guy that can get the job done? With Will Smith, if he's got a three-run lead, I'm just fine with him throwing the ninth if it allows the other relievers we've been talking about to maybe get those critical outs in the 6th, 7th, or 8th inning as the Braves' offense is still adding to a lead. It's kind of strange. You look at saves and you feel like, oh, well, our best relievers should probably end up with the most saves. It's just kind of that old-school way of looking at it. But as baseball has evolved, especially over the last probably 20 years, the save is a stat that is about as useful as pitcher wins as well. It's like, hey, I'm here and we won. But the team had to do a whole lot of things outside of that inning or those innings to make that win possible, to make that save possible as well. I think it's interesting with Richard Rodriguez. So it kind of is reminiscent of Shane Green when they picked him up from the Tigers when you had this all-star closer. You know, you looked at the numbers and you thought, man, look at that ERA. And this is a guy who's piling up the saves. And then you dug a little bit deeper into some of the peripherals on him and you kind of had your reservations about him. And obviously, you know, he went through his struggles, you know, that first stint there with the Braves and, you know, found it a little bit in the postseason. But with Rodriguez, I mean, you, again, you had a guy, you know, who's had some success as a closer in Pittsburgh. But the thing that I thought was so weird about him, and it, it kind of reared its head, was how much he flipped the script from 2020. I mean, he was mm-hmm. rag- he was piling up strikeouts in 2020, and he was throwing his slider a ton. And then he comes to Atlanta this year, and he's, you know, the fastball usage is approaching 90%. And right. guess what happens? He runs into a bunch of trouble when they start pitching him in higher leverage situations, and teams start seeing him more. Yeah, the spin rate on his fastball is crazy, but guys can hit a fastball. And if you're not really establishing that secondary pitch, that to me is like, well, unless you're going to throw 101, but if you're throwing 93 and you're relying on spin, I think that's why he's so troublesome. And that's why you know, if you're Will Smith, I don't think I'd be too concerned about Rich Rodriguez taking your job. No, I would imagine not. Just looking at his 2020 numbers, Rodriguez struck out over 13 batters per nine. I know it's only 23 and a third innings, and and that's fair to say. It was a smaller sample size. You look at him year over year from 2020 to 2021, his ERA has barely moved. His FIP, meanwhile, has gone up about a run and a quarter. And just looking at the Braves, you'd think Rodriguez, oh, 259 ERA in 25 games. Just what the doctor ordered when he came over from Pittsburgh. But I think what's really troubling is 20 hits, six of those have left the park. In fact, he had a string of appearances where it seemed like it hadn't been a day for him unless a home run had been hit. 
Only nine strikeouts in those 24 and a third innings since he's come over Corey. And this year, all told between Pittsburgh and Atlanta in 62 and two-thirds innings, six strikeouts per nine. That's just not a sustainable mark in the big leagues in 2021. And you mentioned he's going to need a reliable second pitch. Heck, at this point, he may even need an out pitch because everybody in the big leagues is a fastball hitter. He's getting better, though. Uh, last time out against the Padres, he threw a slider 41% of the time, which you know was actually a season high for yeah. him. Um, so he's starting to rely on the fastball a little bit less, but he's touched 94 this year. I mean, it, I mean, you give me, you know, a roll as Chapman. Okay. You want to just throw a fastball, throw fastballs, but if you're throwing 90, 94 and you're not locating, I mean, dudes are going to eat you up. And we've seen the worst of that at times uh, with him in a Braves uniform. And heck, it's not just Richard Rodriguez throwing 94 miles an hour and trying to get hitters out at the big league levels. That's about where Will Smith sits, and you understand why he wants to be a little bit more breaking ball heavy at times, but hanging those breaking balls can be a big problem. I think of the candidates that you look at, if you do want to make a change in the ninth for matchups or other reasons, in a righty situation, if you need somebody to come in that you feel like can get you the outs you need, I think at this point it's Luke Jackson, because Chris Martin, I don't have a whole lot of faith in his ability to keep runners off the bases and keep runs off the board, and I think we've seen enough of some of the other guys to know that this just may not be their year. Tyler Matzak would be the guy from the left side that I would look at. But at some point during the game, again, to go back, and this could obviously go on forever and ever, this conversation, somebody's got to get big outs before you get to the ninth inning. The ninth inning, though, as I talked to Peter Moreland last week on the show, those three outs are still incredibly tough to get. They may be the hardest ones to get, but it may not matter if you don't get the outs with a lead to get it to a guy to have a safe situation in the ninth inning, whether that's one run, two runs, or three runs. Yeah, I'll go back on Luke Jackson real quick, though. It's remarkable to think about the year-over-year turn for him. And, I, you know, 26 and a third last year in that shortened season. But he had an almost 7 ERA, mm-hmm. and now it's sub-2, and he's been really good. He had 230 ERA+. plus. I, he's not going to get love in terms of the comeback player of the year kind of awards, but I, I think he's been massively important to the success of this bullpen. He's really been through the ringer, you know, in, in terms of his Braves career. When you think about him, them needing him before that two years ago when they went out and got all those uh, relievers at the deadline, what he was doing is in the closer role then. Um, but, man, this has been a, a fantastic year for him, and I, I hope he gets an opportunity to, to pitch some high-leverage innings into the season, into the postseason, because he certainly earned it. I think that he has as well. The five main Braves relievers that you got, you feel pretty good, I think, about Luke Jackson and Tyler Metzek. It's a bit of a mixed bag with A.J. Mentor this year, been a mixed bag with Chris Martin as well, and it especially hasn't been good in the last couple of months. And with Will Smith, we've seen kind of the roller coaster ride that can go on. He has gotten the job done more times than not, but I don't think that people are looking at the traditional saves versus blown saves and thinking that's the entire story with him. It's been an adventure. Let's just leave it at that. So I think we've covered all of the things that people need to know heading into this Phillies series, but I want to make sure that people know about something awful important to us. So let's talk about something pretty cool that we're doing now as we launched a brand new show for Talking Chop. It's on their YouTube channel. It's called Battery Power. You can subscribe to Talking Chop on YouTube, so make sure you do that. I really enjoyed our pilot episode. I feel like it's just onward and upward from there, though, Corey, and we're going to bring you that great Braves conversation each and every week. I'm very, very excited about this. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a lot of fun going forward. I can't. I'm really excited to be doing this with you. And if you can't track it down on YouTube, you know, check out Talking Chops uh, Twitter. You'll find some links there and some snippets of it that'll take you to the main show. There'll be articles posted on it on the Talking Chop website. So it's going to be everywhere. You'll have no excuse for not finding it. And we hope you join us. <laughs> yeah, we absolutely do. Corey, I appreciate your time. As always, I'll let you get out of here. Braves have got a big series going on, a chance to clinch. 
the National League East for the fourth consecutive year. And then we've got a chance to talk about some really important baseball, the most important baseball you can, heading into the postseason, both here on From the Diamond and, of course, on Battery Power. Corey, I appreciate you. I look forward to talking to you soon. All right, man. Thanks as always. That'll wrap us up on this edition of From the Diamond. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Leave those ratings and reviews if you wouldn't mind. And if you like the show, be sure to tell a friend. All of that will help out From the Diamond immensely. You can find me on Twitter at Grant McCauley. You can find Corey on Twitter at Corey J. McCartney. And you can find the show at From the Diamond with an underscore on the end. I am at Grant McCauley on Instagram. The show is at From the Diamond with no underscore on Instagram. And if you're looking for videos, including every episode of Battery Power, as well as articles and every edition of From the Diamond, you can find it all on FromTheDiamond.com. So that'll do it for this episode. The Braves embark on their biggest series of the year as they look to clinch the National League East for the fourth consecutive season. We'll be back next time to talk all about the results of this series and hopefully the Braves' big playoff push. For Corey McCartney, I'm Grant McCauley. This has been From the Diamond, and we will catch you next time. So long, everyone. <laughs>